This podcast from Teacher is supported by MacKillop Seasons, whose Seasons for Life project supports schools with loss and grief following a suicide and other loss event. Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the Research Files from Teacher Magazine. I'm Jo Earp. Have a guess at these two questions first of all. How many scientists are mentioned in high school science curricula here in Australia? And how many of those do you think are women? Well, after discovering that Marie Curie wasn't even mentioned in the radioactivity section of one state physics syllabus, astrophysicist Dr Catherine Ross set out to explore if the contributions of other women were being overlooked. The fact that the research team found a gender bias probably won't surprise you, but the extent of it will. Kat, who's an associate lecturer and science communicator at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research at Curtin University, joins me to share the shocking findings and implications and what can be done to improve the situation. If you're a teacher looking for ideas of who you could be including, we'll also run through a very short starter list of 11 female scientists. And you'll hear about hashtag include her. Kat founded the movement and is now heading a team to develop an in-school programme to work with teachers to help them adapt their current lesson plans, with the aim to also create free resources for educators to use in the classroom. This is definitely one of my favourite podcast interviews of all time, and as always, there's a lot to talk about. So let's get started. Hi Kat, thanks for joining us at Teacher. Now, you're the lead researcher on this project and the team has recently published a paper in the Australian Journal of Education on the findings. So before we start, actually, I thought it would be good to give your co-authors on that paper a shout out too. So we've got Shanika Gouladage, Tegan Clark, uh, Natalia Lawson, Andrew Battisti, Helen Adam, Alexandra K. Ross and Nikki Sweeney. Okay then, so this research involved analysis of four senior secondary science courses. So you did uh, have a look at biology, chemistry, environmental science and physics. That was across all eight states and territories in Australia. And um, one note there, Northern Territory really follows the same curriculum as um, South Australia. So, that, so the analysis for that was combined. Um, you looked specifically at mentions of male and female scientists and then also the context of that within the syllabuses to see if there was a gender bias. Now, I want to start with the headline findings from the study and then actually backtrack a little bit about the representation of females in STEM studies and and careers. And then we'll dig a a little bit deeper into the findings and the data there, and then also the implications of what you found. So, So first of all, what were the key findings from your study? So yeah, as you mentioned, we were looking to see if there was a gender bias present. So we were just counting the number of scientists that were mentioned um, and who was mentioned as well. And what we found across all of the states and territories in Australia, there are 145 unique scientists that are mentioned. And of those 145 scientists, just one is a woman. 
uh, and that's Rosalind Franklin, and she's only mentioned in Queensland and the combined South Australian Northern Territory syllabuses. So there's only one woman, one woman in all of Australia, and she's also not included in the majority of states and territories in Australia, which is a pretty disheartening uh, result to see. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm actually just going to let that sink in a while for listeners. Mm. To clarify then, how did you do the data collection? So you were looking for explicit mentions and then and then you actually classified these into one or two groupings as well, didn't you? That's it. Yeah, we wanted to look and see if these mentions were specifically related to the scientist or are they sort of implicit mentions because something's named after a scientist. So, for example, referring to Newton's laws is not really referencing Newton, the scientist themselves, but the laws and the work that was named after him. So we classified the mentions into two categories, either a concept mention where it is that law or a, a, a discovery that was named after a person, as well as a scientist mention where the scientist is the subject um, or it's a completely additional unnecessary mention of a scientist. And we found that still for the majority of states and territories, there's a lot of mentions of the scientists themselves. So we're still learning very much of the narrative of the scientist attached to the science. There are some states and territories, in particular the ACT, which had zero mentions of scientists. They really took a very concept approach and the only mentions of scientists were sort of unavoidable, these mentions where they're actually referring to the content and the science that happens to be named after men. But regardless of the way that we're mentioning these scientists, it is almost exclusively men that are being referred to. Mm -hmm. So whichever grouping you look at it, it's not exactly. It's not good. So I think the, the overall finding then of gender bias, look, I, I, I didn't find it surprising myself, the overall finding, and I don't think most listeners will find it surprising, but the extent of that is absolutely remarkable. And as mm. I say, the findings for this study have been published in the Australian Journal of Education, as with all the uh, research papers uh, that we cover on the podcast. I'll put a link to that in the transcript of this over at teachermagazine.com. And we do recommend you looking at the full paper. You'll see in there figure two in particular, that's quite stunning. Um, I'll, I'll explain it to listeners. You've got, you've used, <laughs> you've used these donut charts which, with, um, with the percentage of men and women named in STEM curricula for the states and territories. You've got men in the light shade, women in the dark shade, uh, men nice shade of pink there. Um, and, and there are just two really thin slivers on the Queensland and the Northern Territory slash South Australia, as we mentioned, those combined um, on, on those areas. The rest, it's just one colour for men. Um, mm. For yourselves as researchers then, were you surprised by just how bad the situation is? I think yes and no. Part of the reason we even started doing this study is because the majority of us went through this system. We went through education in Australia. We studied this high school curriculum and we're all now working um, as researchers or studying, doing our PhDs in science related fields. So I think it wasn't a surprise because we're all familiar with it. We all went through it. But just the extent to which it is so clearly biased, I think, was what was shocking. Um, in particular, the fact that Marie Curie isn't mentioned, despite the fact that every single state covers radioactivity, and she even coined the term radioactive, uh, but she's not mentioned once anywhere in Australia. I think stats like that is what's really shocking to me, that it doesn't matter how remarkable the women are or how remarkable the work is, it's still underappreciated, it's still under-celebrated, and it's not being taught to the same extent that men are being taught. So I think the the stats themselves weren't necessarily shocking, but the extent to which it's happening and also the, the way that most people just didn't seem to even realise this was a problem, I think that's what's really shocking, that it's just a pervasive, unconscious bias 
that we have of science is done by men. Science has only ever been done by men and women have played no role and continue to have no role in science. And that is just fundamentally incorrect. So we're teaching this inaccurate view of science. I think the, the view that a lot of people that are either teachers or the curriculum developers, the students, everyone involved in science education, that there was such a pervasive narrative that this was true um, and that people were not really aware of this gender bias. I think that was what was more shocking to us as researchers. Mm-hmm. And people can't see on the podcast, but I'm throwing my arms up with the mention of Marie Curie <laughs> there. And at various points in this podcast, I'll be throwing my arms up as well. And and there are those studies out there where, where they... Um, where they speak to kids, really young kids, and say, draw a scientist, mm. and, mm-hmm. and they'll invariably draw a man. Um, so, yeah, it starts at a very young age as well. I just want to highlight the New South Wales courses um, so in mm. the paper. This is a quote <laughs> from the paper. Investigating science um, also mentions two female cartoon characters, namely Edna Crabapple and Maggie Simpson. Thus, students enrolled in investigating science are exposed to more examples of female cartoon characters than female scientists. Yes, it kind of speaks for itself. That's a really disheartening stat. And I think we came when we came across that, it was just mind-boggling. So in investigating science, Marie Curie is mentioned. Um, she's mentioned and shares a dot point with Henry Becquerel. Um, but then there are the two mentions of cartoon characters. And they're actually only mentioned because a male scientist was publishing using them as a pseudonym. Um, to publish pseudoscience. It was a commentary on the fact that, you know, these predatory journals, uh, you can just kind of publish whatever you want. Uh, And so they were putting these clearly fake characters in there as authors to see if that would still pass through. So the the context that even these cartoon characters are being mentioned is still associated with men. It's still the man that is doing this science. Uh, but still the the only representation that you're really getting is is a cartoon character. It's just so stark that we have this view we're teaching our students that if you're a young girl and you're interested in science or you want a career in science, that ends for you at high school. You have no future in high in science beyond high school. That's what we're telling them with this curriculum. And it's just so heartbreaking to see it in just such clear statistics. Mm-hmm. And erasing all those contributions, as you say in the paper, mm. raising all those contributions of women throughout history. And we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later. And we'll take a closer look at the results for each for each course as well in a moment. But I do want to have a think about the context that this is taking place in then. And you mentioned there about careers. What, what do we know about firstly the representation of women in STEM studies and careers? There's been a huge amount of research, particularly recently, um, coming from the Women in STEM Ambassador Office. Um, They're looking at the representation of women in STEM careers at all different ages. So right through from from primary school up to professor levels and and working in industry as well. And what we see is that women are definitely underrepresented in STEM fields at all stages, but particularly these really high-end professor um, or CEO levels in industry. So women are very much represented in undergraduate courses. We're seeing an increase in the number of women that are enrolling in STEM courses. It's very slow, but it is increasing. Uh, But then beyond that, we start to see women plummet in the, the percentages of women working in these STEM fields, whether at academic institutes like universities or in industry and STEM-related fields. So there's definitely an underrepresentation of women in these STEM fields, but the percentages of that is about 30% of women in STEM workforces. So even if you're randomly sampling women uh, or scientists to include in the curriculum, we should be expecting at least 30%. Uh, of representation of women. So even though there's uh, an underrepresentation, that's not really reflected 
uh, to the same degree in the curriculum. Uh, and we, we're well aware of these issues. We know that women are disengaging from STEM from quite a young age, particularly from uh, what we consider these hard, I'm putting that in, in bunny quotes, these hard sciences uh, like physics and mathematics and IT. So we know that women are, are disengaging from that at really quite young ages, uh, and that's definitely a real problem that we need to face. But we're working to address that in many, many different ways, but not apparently in the curriculum. So uh, yes, there is definitely a lack of representation in uh, in representation of women in these STEM fields, but it's it's slowly improving, just not nearly as fast as as it should be, I think. Mm-hmm. And you were saying there, even if we set a really low bar of that 30% still not meeting that, just a reminder that, you know, just those two areas, Queensland and, and NT slash South Australia, they were about 1.4%, 1.5%, I think, and the rest was zero. So we are so far off even the lowest bar. And um, Alongside that then, what do we know about the importance of female role models in these fields? Yeah. This is um, becoming more and more evident that role models are really important. So there's an overwhelming amount of research about how we can um, get students to engage and participate with STEM. Uh, And the evidence is sort of leaning towards this sense of belonging as being the most crucial thing for students to, to feel like they can pursue a career in STEM. And to have this sense of belonging, there needs to be authentic and relatable role models for students at every stage, not just, you know, a Nobel Prize winner, which let's face it, if you're just a, a high school student, that's not very relatable. Uh, you may have aspirations, but it's very hard to see the stepping stones from high school to a Nobel Prize. So we need examples of role models that students can relate to at each stage. Now, for a lot of women, gender diverse people, people of colour, anyone who isn't this sort of lone white male genius person, you don't really have those examples. You really don't have access to them uh, at any stage. So these role models are really, really important for people to be able to picture themselves at every stage towards a STEM career and be able to see themselves pursuing that. Um, And most importantly, they do need to be relatable. They need to be authentic. So these tokenistic mentions or just random name drops is not actually going to help this situation. We need to have enough representation that all students can find someone that they can actually relate to uh, and aspire to in in STEM. Mm -hmm. And that old saying, if you can't be what you can't see. Um, Mm. So let's dig down into each of the subject areas then. How did they compare? I mean, I guess some will be mentioning scientists or the concepts more frequently than others, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. So we see a a trend across all the states and territories that physics is consistently the subject that includes the most references of scientists. This is both the scientists and actually the concept mentions, uh, which is quite understandable, I guess, and physics is quite a a history of naming these these concepts Mm -hmm. after men. Uh, But what we find also consistently is that environmental science has the lowest mentions of scientists. And I find this particularly interesting, the comparison between environmental science and physics, um, just that complete dichotomy, that that absolute juxtaposition, because physics is traditionally seen as this male endeavour, this very classic physics, classic science, um, you know, very rigorous and mathematical. uh, And it's got all these very typically male traits associated with it. Whether or not those are valid uh, is a very separate discussion, (laughs) I think. I could definitely rant about that for a long time being a physicist myself. Uh, But that's interesting that this very male-dominated 
subject is the one that has consistently the most number of mentions. Whereas environmental science is quite a modern science. We see uh, it really taking off, you know, in recent decades. And women have been pioneers in this field since the beginning. So, for example, Eunice Foote was the one who discovered and proposed that CO2 in the atmosphere would have a really heating effect. That's obviously very relevant to today as we're mm -hmm. battling the climate crisis. Consistently, environmental science has the least number of mentions, if any at all. And I think that that shows that narrative that we really value and we put on a pedestal these lone white male geniuses that we see very common in the Eurocentric narrative um, and the, the Enlightenment era in physics. But environmental science being that more modern um, and more uh, um, female dominated and female pioneers being involved in environmental science, having that historical context for those two subjects and seeing that come out in the way that we're talking about the scientists, that there's just no mention or appreciation of the women that have been pioneers in environmental science in the same way that it's being done in physics. So I, I think the way that we're including scientists per subjects also speaks to the way that we perceive these masculine and feminine science subjects as well. And biology also considered quite a, a feminine science Again, whether that's justified and, and uh, a valid perception is, is a different discussion. But I also have uh, the fewest mentions um, close to, to uh, environmental science. We see very few mentions in biology across all states and territories as well. So I think it's pretty clear what we appreciate and what we, we consider worthwhile teaching uh, in the way that we're talking about scientists in these subjects. Mm -hmm. So, so who are the, there's different exposure there then according to, to which course you're on. Who are the scientists then, who are the male, male scientists that are getting all the focus? Is it, you You know, we mentioned the Newtons, the, the Einstein, mm -hmm. you know, who are the ones that are getting into it's, the kids' yeah. heads the most? That's it. You, you've nailed it there already. It's Newton, it's Einstein, it's Maxwell. They're the ones that are predominantly getting the vast majority of mentions. I think there was even just one module in a Queensland physics uh, course that mentioned Einstein dozens of times uh, and it's a lot of them are these concept mentions of Einstein's theory of such and such but we're also at the stage where I think we can just be talking about relativity you know the theory of relativity do we mm -hmm. need to be attaching mm -hmm. Einstein's name to it and Einstein then because he's mentioned so frequently because he is just seen as this pinnacle of what a scientist should be the crazy white hair the you know old white man that that classic narrative of a genius who made these major discoveries that just propelled science further you know into the future that narrative is just untouchable. It means that Einstein is, is just this perfect representation of what we want a scientist to be. But it's also incredibly inaccurate. Einstein did not work alone. Einstein had the work of his wife, who do, did a lot of the, the mathematics, who received next to no credit for that work, but also the collaboration and discussion of other scientists in his time. Einstein didn't work alone. He wasn't this lone male genius. But he's untouchable because of the narrative that's associated with him and the way that we teach him. So the vast majority of mentions were definitely Einstein, Newton, Maxwell. They covered most of these mentions. But we also see pretty much all the other mentions coming from that Enlightenment period in Europe uh, and very European focus as well. So 
pretty much exactly who you're thinking of when you think of a, a stereotypical example of a scientist, other people we're teaching of. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's the next thing I want to touch on, because you looked alongside gender, then you looked at the, the possibility of this Eurocentric focus and no surprises there, the spoiler mm -hmm. there. Yes, there was. Um, so the curricula talk about, uh, firstly, a diverse range of scientists working mm -hmm. in a global community of practice and the prioritising of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander histories and cultures, of course. What did you find then? So yes, pretty much every course would say that they should be teaching of this diverse nature of science and the collaboration nature of science and that it's a, a global effort. And then uh, over 75% of the mentions came from Europe. So that's not really demonstrating diversity in science. Um, and I think also most shockingly, there was not a single Australian that was mentioned anywhere in any course across Australia, not one Australian. Uh, that is heartbreaking because there's some incredible science that's going on in <laughs> Australia, uh, particularly in my own field. I'm a radio astronomer and Australia was one of the pioneers globally in that field. We really established that field um, as as uh, as a powerhouse in, in the world. So to have zero mentions of Australians is definitely uh, an oversight. But as you mentioned, there's uh, always a mention of including Aboriginal science and Indigenous knowledge. Uh, and that's not really then represented in, in the actual dot points. It's sort of mentioned at the beginning in the preamble saying, make sure you include this, but there's no real direction for teachers. There's no real instruction of how to do that or what knowledge is to be including. And I think that just means that it's it's not being included because it's, it's too hard without that direction, without that, um, that instruction being clear. So it's encouraged, but not really reflected in the, in the yeah. curriculum itself. So there's lots to think about already, and we'll be back with more discussion after this quick message from our sponsor. You're listening to a podcast from Teacher Magazine, supported by MacKillop Seasons, whose Seasons for Life project supports young people affected by suicide and other loss events throughout Australia. Free for Australian high schools and based on the strong evidence base of the Seasons for Growth, Change, Loss and Grief education programmes, the Seasons for Life project builds well-being, resilience, social and emotional coping skills and strengthens supportive relationships. I want to read one more quote from your AG paper, and, and it goes back to this thing you're saying about low male, male genius. In the vast majority of cases, students are only exposed to scientists via relevant discoveries being named after the scientist who discovered them. Historically, such naming conventions only provided recognition to male scientists, as female scientists were excluded from formal recognition at institutes and often had their work miscredited to male colleagues. Consequently, without significant contextual introduction, many students are implicitly being taught that only male scientists have made discoveries of note and that only male scientists are formally recognised for their work. Students are thus almost exclusively being taught scientific concepts through the narrative of the lone male genius. So um, if it's not been explicitly stated, and supported in the course outlines, then there is a responsibility and a, and, a, and a heavy responsibility there on teachers to give this broader context, right? That's exactly it. Um, the way that we're leaving the curriculum at the moment, 
it's forcing the teachers to take that extra step to put in extra time to learn about the social context and the history behind the naming conventions of each subject, uh, as well as the contributions that women had in these fields, and make a very conscious effort to include that in the classrooms and have that discourse with students. And I think um, both you and your listeners could agree, teachers kind of have a lot on their plate. <laughs> They're quite busy and the curriculum is large. There's a lot to cover. So there's really just not time for teachers to take that initiative uh, and then include it in the classroom. And it's it's not the work of the teachers to do that. It shouldn't be the responsibility of the teachers. There's also an issue of, of the majority of, of science teachers, particularly physics, are not necessarily physicists themselves, don't have uh, that, that physics training. And so you're relying on teachers who are teacher trained to then become experts in physics fields uh, so much so that they know of the context, they know of this background and they know of the contributions that women have had to then be including that in your curriculum. And that is just an absurd amount of extra work that you're putting on the teachers, an absurd workload for people that are clearly already overworked and undervalued. And it's really not their responsibility to be doing that. So as a result, the students are the ones that then miss out by not having that recognition included and not having that narrative discussed openly. And there are, uh, most states will have a science as a human endeavor uh, section, but there's still even in these sections, very rarely an active mention of, of having that open discourse, of having the discussion about the role that gender played in science discoveries and, and the place that women held in traditional science institutes. So it's again, still, even though there's this section specifically dedicated to having that discourse, it's still not even being included in those sections either. Mm -hmm. I mean, a shout out to those teachers that are doing it and, and a remarkable sort of the legwork to make that happen. So well done yeah. to you if you are listening and you are one of those that, that's doing it. But I can imagine, like you say, such a lot of extra work to be doing, which we mm. haven't got time for. Um, mm. of, of course, with all areas of the curriculum, then it's not to say that you can't do that legwork. It might be mm -hmm. hard, but it's not to say you can't veer away from, you know, the examples that are given. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the AGE paper, you include a list um, a, a starting point, you make that clear, mm -hmm. it's just a starting point. There are many, many, many examples out there, believe me, of notable female scientists who, um, as you say, have made a significant contributions to common topics currently included in all curricula. I thought for the last part of the podcast, then it would be good if we actually gave people a bit of a hand with this starting point. Let's mm -hmm. um, let's go through them, if that's OK. Absolutely, yes. So first one, we've got Rosalind Franklin. And were you saying that actually she's already mentioned? Is she the one? She's the one that is mentioned <laughs> okay. in Queensland, Northern Territory and South Australia. So let's at least make it that the rest of the states also <laughs> include her work. And I think it's important to, to note that mentioning Rosalind Franklin at the moment, predominantly she's only ever mentioned in the context of the narrative of Watson and Crick stealing her work. So she's still only ever really included in the concept of a narrative of men. And I think she should be included. She's done some incredible research. So let's talk about her research, um, not just this discovery of the double helix structure of DNA, but she did a huge amount of work in developing the field and um, and the, the pioneering work of, of the technique of X-ray crystallography. So there's work that she's done beyond having her work stolen by Watson and Crick. And that perhaps is the narrative we should be telling our students because otherwise, I mean, currently, she's the only representation that we have, and the representation of women in STEM in Australia is men will steal your work and get a Nobel Prize for it. So that's not a great narrative to be having. <laughs> no. Uh, let's go to the second one then. Nettie Stevens. Tell me a bit about Nettie. 
Yes, Nettie Stevens, also an incredible scientist. And as you say, this is a starting point. So we're kind of mentioning the, the women that could so easily be um, included without really changing any of the content. So Nettie Stevens mm -hmm. helped to discover these uh, sex chromosomes in the early 1900s. And uh, in biology, every state is learning about these sex chromosomes. So I think let's let's have the credit where credit is due. If you're learning about it, learn about Nettie Stevens' discovery of sex chromosomes. There you go, teachers. Nice, easy one for you there. Fiona Wood, also biology. Yes, Fiona Wood. It was actually one of my role models as a kid. Uh, she invented spray-on skin, and it was really important, particularly in the in the Bali bombings. So uh, an incredible medical researcher and, and helping with burns victims as well. So another really easy one of just the applications of science and the applications both uh, on a humanitarian level, but also this incredible uh, invention of spray-on skin. I think the content of uh, creating uh, the narrative of we made a discovery, here's the raw science, is one way to teach science. But Fiona Wood's a great example of how is that science applied in a modern context and, and the impact that it had uh, was so large that she's such a great example of, of the implications of science as well. Mm -hmm. And an Australian scientist as well. Exactly. Uh, Mary Marie Curie. Marie well, Curie. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> speaks for herself. I, I hope. I mean, I already mentioned Marie Curie, two Nobel Prizes in chemistry and physics, discovered radioactivity, coined the term. What, what more do I need to say, really? Yeah. If you're not, if you're not including her, please, please do. Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin, uh, chemistry. Yes. And so this is also similar to using X-ray techniques um, to Rosalind Franklin. So she helped to discover these structures of, of biochemical structures using X-ray um, to help really delve into the very small details. So if you're looking at X-ray and you're looking at these crystalline structures uh, in chemistry, start to mention Dorothy Crawford Hodgkin uh, mm -hmm. and the, the work that she did as well. Yeah. So that's in that area of crystallography as well, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. Maria Gopert Meyer, chemistry. Yes. Yes. So uh, we all learn of the um, the different structures of atoms and this shell model of atoms. Uh, and that was actually done by Maria Garbutt Myers. So uh, simple. Again, credit where credit is due. Nice and simple. Yeah. Who knew? Huh? Who um, knew? <laughs> sorry, let me get back to my list. We've got Eunice Foote, environmental science. Uh, you mentioned her earlier. I did also mention Eunice Foote, another great example. Um, I think particularly environmental science is having a real uptick in not just the number of students that are enrolling in it, we're seeing it really climbing quickly as, as a popular science subject at high school, but particularly with women as well. So it's uh, women uh, absolutely taking it at higher and higher levels each year. Um, and Eunice Foote, I mentioned that environmental science women have been pioneers from the beginning and Eunice Wood is a perfect example of that. So she proposed that uh, excess CO2 in the atmosphere would have this heating effect, a global heating effect. Uh, and that is very relevant to today. Uh, and we all learn of, of the global warming effect of, of the greenhouse effect. Uh, and she was really the one that, that figured that out. Mm -hmm. uh, Marie Tharp, also environmental Marie science, and that's to do with tectonic plates, isn't it? It is, yes. So she was the one that proposed that there's uh, this, she she did the first ocean profile, um, oceanic floor profile. Uh, and from that profile thought, oh, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of ridges here. Could there be these plates, these tectonic plates? And she proposed that to her supervisor being like, oh, I think I've, I've found something. And initially dismissed, but uh, I think we can all agree now that's a pretty accepted theory now. 
And Emma Johnston, of course, environmental science, exactly. another Australian yes. scientist. Another Aussie. That's it. And, uh, and this is the thing. There's plenty of Australian scientists that we can include in both historical and, and more modern examples as well. Emma Johnston is, is fabulous for environmental research and also the communication of environmental research and the importance of environmental research uh, as well. So I think she's a great example of being able to show why we should do this research and, and why it's important to maintain the amazing biodiversity that Australia has and and really showcasing how incredible Australian marine biology in particular is uh, and why we should be saving that. Mm -hmm. And perhaps a well-known name of recent times, Michelle Simmons in physics, another Australian. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, so she's working a lot on super, sorry, semiconductors, uh, not superconductors, <laughs> semiconductors, uh, which are going to be really, well, already are very, very important for pretty much all technologies that we're using uh, and creating these really, really efficient ones that have low resistance uh, is also incredibly important for all technologies. Uh, and we see a lot of women um, uh, involved in technologies and information technologies it's we're we're not really very represented. There's not many women enrolling in those courses. It's definitely one of the the subjects that we see persistent low levels of of women enrolling in it. So I think having another example of the applications of these electronics and the applications of these laws of electronics um, into modern technologies is another great example of someone who can be relatable because you can physically see the impact of it. You're using it in your research, and I think that's a another great example of why it's relevant and important to include her. Mm -hmm. And the final one to, to finish your shortlist, uh, a reminder, it's just a starting point, is another huge one, isn't it? Uh, Lisa Meitner in physics. That's it. Yeah, who worked on nuclear fission uh, and a lot of radioactivity related things as well. So there's, a, uh, as I mentioned, radioactivity is included across all states um, mm -hmm. and nuclear fission and fusion is often included as part of that as well. So Liz Meitner being uh, a huge person involved in, in the radioactivity isotopes and um, the discovery of nuclear fusion as well, um, which is, again, very important for a lot of power um, that we, we use today. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. So that's a that's a bit of an idea for you listening. Um, as you mentioned earlier, Kat, just a tokenistic mention of these names, though, that's not going to solve anything. That's not going to lead to change. I mean, it's good that we're mentioning them. Um, mm. So that's the starting point to try and develop that, that um, relevant and rich context that we were talking about and content. What would you like to see happen in the longer term? Yeah, so as you mentioned, a, a tokenistic mention is is not going to solve that. Um, credit where credit is due, women should be included. Going through that list, as I mentioned, pretty much all of those topics are included in all states. Uh, and we learn of that content, we learn of those discoveries, but it's not women who've discovered them. They're just sort of these spontaneous bits of knowledge that we seem to have found. So initially having these short-term credit where credit is due is is great but it doesn't address that problem, as you say. And it lacks having that in-depth, detailed discussion of how women have been pushed out of science, the implications of that, and the exclusion from these formal institutes as well. What I really think we need to be doing is a fundamental review of the way we teach science and science education as a whole. Um, because at the moment, across the board, there's a really big focus on the content, on this was the you know fundamental law, here's the science at its, at its heart, which is important and, and that helps a lot of students. But I think fundamentally, a lot of students are far more engaged when we see the applications, when we see how this science is relevant. And I think one of the most common questions uh, when I was in high school, whenever we were learning something new, was just why are we learning this? And if the answer is because it's in the syllabus, that's not really an answer. That's not an interesting answer for a student. 
And I think it's not interesting for teachers either. If teachers are bored teaching content, then students are going to be bored hearing about it. So teaching of these new discoveries, these modern applications of fundamental physics and fundamental science as well, um, that's what's really going to be crucial, I think. And also having this, this student-led discovery, a student-led project, student-led research, um, where they can go in and learn about these things in their own time would be fantastic. But that is essentially a complete overhaul of our entire science education and science uh, curricula. So I think that's definitely a long-term goal. Um, in the meantime, my uh, team and I are, are working on an in-school program. We're actually working with teachers and students to develop an in-school program where we can work with teachers to help them adapt their current lesson plans. We're very familiar with the curriculum. We know it inside out, but we're also very familiar with the women who have contributed to that science. So helping them to develop this uh, change in the way that they're teaching to include the modern examples, to include these applications while still addressing the syllabus doc points, and then starting that conversation with students, having the discourse of what it means to be a woman in STEM and what this lone male genius narrative is and where it comes from and why it's a problematic narrative to have. So people can absolutely look up uh, a more comprehensive list than just that short one that we mentioned. I think we've collected a list of over 300 women in STEM that can easily be included uh, in curricula um, across Australia. And that's just on our website at includeher.au. Um, and you can see everything we're working on there. Uh, and hopefully we'll be starting to develop these resources that teachers can download for free to adapt their lesson plans, addressing these dot points, but with a far more inclusive representation of scientists. Fantastic. Well, it's great work that you're doing there. And uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Best of luck with the Include Her program as well. Uh, for now, though, Dr. Catherine Ross, thanks very much for sharing your expertise with the research files. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. That's all for this episode. If you want to read the full paper, which is open access from Dr. Kat Ross and colleagues, just type Invisible Women Australian Journal of Education into your search engine or head to the transcript of this podcast at teachermagazine.com for a direct link. If you want to keep listening, you can access almost 300 teacher podcast episodes from our archive at teachermagazine.com or wherever you get your podcasts from. Before you go, though, I've got a very quick favour to ask. Please take a few moments to review our podcast. It helps other people like you to find it, and it's a big support to the teacher team. So thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from Teacher, supported by MacKillop Seasons, Seasons for Life, supporting schools and young people affected by suicide and other significant losses. Visit mckillopseasons.org.au